Section 12 of Good Sense. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Good Sense by Paul Henri Thierry, Baron Dolbach. Translator unknown. Section 12, parts 122 to 132. 122. The more a religion is ancient and general, the more suspect. Whoever has formed true ideas of the ignorance, credulity, negligence, and stupidity of the vulgar will suspect opinions the more, as he finds them generally established. Men, for the most part, examine nothing. They blindly submit to custom and authority. Their religious opinions, above all others, are those which they have the least courage and capacity to examine. As they comprehend nothing about them, they are forced to be silent, or at least are soon destitute of arguments. Ask any man whether he believes in a god. He will be much surprised that you can doubt it. Ask him again what he understands by the word god. You throw him into the greatest embarrassment. You will perceive immediately that he is incapable of affixing any real idea to this word he incessantly repeats. He will tell you that God is God. He knows neither what he thinks of it nor his motives for believing in it. All nations speak of a God, but do they agree upon this God? By no means. But division upon an opinion proves not its evidence. It is rather a sign of uncertainty and obscurity. Does the same man always agree with himself in the notions he forms of his God? No. His idea varies with the changes which he experiences. Another sign of uncertainty. Men always agree in demonstrative truths. In any situation, except that of insanity, everyone knows that two and two make four, that the sun shines, that the whole is greater than its part that benevolence is necessary to merit the affection of men, that injustice and cruelty are incompatible with goodness. Are they thus agreed when they speak of God? Whatever they think or say of him is immediately destroyed by the effects they attribute to him. Ask several painters to represent a chimera, and each will paint it in a different manner. You will find no resemblance between the features, each has given it a portrait that has no original. All theologians, in giving us a picture of God, give us one of a great chimera, in whose features they never agree, whom each arranges in his own way, and who exists only in their imaginations. There are not two individuals who have, or can have, the same ideas of their God. 123. SKEPTICISM IN RELIGIOUS MATTERS FROM VERY SUPERFICIAL STUDY It might be said with more truth that men are either skeptics or atheists than that they are convinced of the existence of God. How can we be assured of the existence of a being whom we could never examine and of whom it is impossible to conceive any permanent idea? How can we convince ourselves of the existence of a being to whom we are every moment forced to attribute conduct opposed to the ideas we had endeavored to form of him? 
Is it then possible to believe what we cannot conceive? Is not such a belief the opinions of others without having any of our own? Priests govern by faith, but do not priests themselves acknowledge that God is to them incomprehensible? Confess, then, that a full and entire conviction of the existence of God is not so general as is imagined. Skepticism arises from a want of motives sufficient to form a judgment. Upon examining the proofs which seem to establish, and the arguments which combat, the existence of God, some persons have doubted and withheld their assent. But this uncertainty arises from not having sufficiently examined. Is it possible to doubt anything evident? Sensible people ridicule an absolute skepticism and think it even impossible. A man who doubted his own existence, or that of the sun, would appear ridiculous. Is this more extravagant than to doubt the non-existence of an evidently impossible being? Is it more absurd to doubt one's own existence than to hesitate upon the impossibility of a being whose qualities reciprocally destroy one another? Do we find greater probability for believing the existence of a spiritual being than the existence of a stick without two ends? Is the notion of an infinitely good and powerful being who causes or permits an infinity of evils less absurd or impossible than that of a square triangle? Let us conclude, then, that religious skepticism can result only from a superficial examination of theological principles which are in perpetual contradiction with the most clear and demonstrative principles. To doubt is to deliberate. Skepticism is only a state of indetermination, resulting from an insufficient examination of things. Is it possible for anyone to be skeptical in matters of religion who will deign to revert to its principles and closely examine the notions of God who serves as its basis? Doubt generally arises either from indolence, weakness, indifference, or incapacity. With many people, to doubt is to fear the trouble of examining things, which are thought uninteresting. But religion, being presented to men as their most important concern in this and the future world, skepticism and doubt on this subject must occasion perpetual anxiety and must really constitute a bed of thorns. Every man who has not courage to contemplate, without prejudice, the God upon whom all religion is founded, can never know for what religion to decide. He knows not what he should believe or not believe, admit or reject, hope or fear. Indifference upon religion must not be confounded with skepticism. This indifference is founded upon the absolute assurance, or at any rate upon the probable belief, that religion is not interesting. A persuasion that a thing which is pretended to be important is not so, or is only indifferent, supposes a sufficient examination of the thing, without which it would be impossible to have this persuasion. Those who call themselves skeptics in the fundamental points of religion are commonly either indolent or incapable of examining. 124. Revelations Examined 
In every country, we are assured, that a god has revealed himself. What has he taught men? Has he proved evidently that he exists? Has he informed them where he resides? Has he taught them what he is, or in what his essence consists? Has he clearly explained to them his intentions and plan? Does what he says of this plan correspond with the effects which we see? No. He informs them solely that he is what he is, that he is a hidden god, that his ways are unspeakable, that he is exasperated against all who have the temerity to fathom his decrees or to consult reason in judging him or his works. Does the revealed conduct of God answer the magnificent ideas which theologians would give us of his wisdom, goodness, justice, and omnipotence? By no means. In every revelation, this conduct announces a partial and capricious being, the protector of favorite people and the enemy of all others. If he deigns to appear to some men, he takes care to keep all others in an invincible ignorance of his divine intentions. Every private revelation evidently announces in God injustice, partiality, and malignity. Do the commands revealed by any God astonish us by their sublime reason or wisdom? Do they evidently tend to promote the happiness of the people to whom the divinity discloses them? Upon examining the divine commands, one sees in every country nothing but strange ordinances, ridiculous precepts, impertinent ceremonies, puerile customs, oblations, sacrifices, and expiations, useful indeed to the ministers of God, but very burdensome to the rest of the citizens. I see likewise that these laws often tend to make men unsociable, disdainful, intolerant, quarrelsome, unjust, and inhuman to those who have not received the same revelations, the same ordinances, or the same favors from heaven. 125. Where is the proof that God ever showed himself or spoke to men? Are the precepts of morality announced by the deity really divine or superior to those which every reasonable man might imagine? They are divine solely because it is impossible for the human mind to discover their utility. They make virtue consist in a total renunciation of nature, in a voluntary forgetfulness of reason, a holy hatred of ourselves. Finally, these sublime precepts often exhibit perfection in a conduct cruel to ourselves and perfectly useless to others. Has a god appeared? Has he himself promulgated his laws? Has he spoken to men with his own mouth? I am told that God has not appeared to a whole people but that he has always manifested himself through the medium of some favorite personages who have been entrusted with the care of announcing and explaining his intentions. The people have never been permitted to enter the sanctuary. The ministers of the gods have alone had the right to relate what passes there. 126. There is nothing that proves miracles to have ever been performed. 
If in every system of divine revelation I complain of not seeing either the wisdom, goodness, or equity of God, if I suspect knavery, ambition, or interest, it is replied that God has confirmed by miracles the mission of those who speak in his name. But was it not more simple for him to appear in person, to explain his nature and will? Again, if I have the curiosity to examine these miracles, I find that they are improbable tales, related by suspected people, who had the greatest interest in giving out that they were the messengers of the Most High. What witnesses are appealed to in order to induce us to believe incredible miracles? Weak people, who existed thousands of years ago, and who, even though they could attest these miracles, may be suspected of being duped by their own imagination and imposed upon by the tricks of dexterous impostors. But, you will say, these miracles are written in books, which by tradition have been transmitted to us. By whom were these books written? Who are the men who have transmitted them? They are either the founders of religions themselves, or their adherents and assigns. Thus, in religion, the evidence of interested parties becomes irrefragable and incontestable. 127. Strange that God spoke differently to different sects. God has spoken differently to every people. The Indian believes not a word of what he has revealed to the Chinese. The Mohammedan considers as fables what he has said to the Christian. The Jew regards both the Mohammedan and Christian as sacrilegious corruptors of the sacred law, which his God had given to his fathers. The Christian, proud of his more modern revelation, indiscriminately damns the Indian, Chinese, Mohammedan, and even the Jew, from whom he receives his sacred books. Who is wrong or right? Each exclaims, I am in the right. Each adduces the same proofs. Each mentions his miracles, diviners, prophets, and martyrs. The man of sense tells them they are all delirious, that God has not spoken, if it is true that he is a spirit, and can have neither mouth nor tongue, that without borrowing the organ of mortals, God could inspire his creatures with what he would have them learn, and that, as they are all equally ignorant what to think of God, it is evident that it has not been the will of God to inform them on the subject. The followers of different forms of worship which are established accuse one another of superstition and impiety. Christians look with abhorrence upon the pagan, Chinese, and Mohammedan superstition. Roman Catholics treat as impious Protestant Christians, and the latter incessantly declaim against the superstition of the Catholics. They are all right. To be impious is to have opinions offensive to the God adored. To be superstitious is to have of him false ideas. In accusing one another of superstition, the different religionists resemble humpbacks who reproach one another with their deformity. 128. Obscurity and Suspicious Origin of Oracles 
Are the oracles, which the divinity has revealed by his different messengers, remarkable for clearness? Alas, no two men interpret them alike. Those who explain them to others are not agreed among themselves. To elucidate them they have recourse to interpretations, to commentaries, to allegories, to explanations. They discover mystical sense very different from the literal sense. Men are everywhere wanted to explain the commands of a god who could not or would not announce himself clearly to those whom he wished to enlighten. 129. Absurdity of all miracles. The founders of religion have generally proved their missions by miracles. But what is a miracle? It is an operation directly opposite to the laws of nature. But who, according to you, made those laws? God. Thus, your God, who, according to you, foresaw everything, counteracts the laws which his wisdom prescribed to nature. These laws were then defective, or, at least in certain circumstances, they did not accord with the views of the same God, since you inform us that he judged it necessary to suspend or counteract them. It is said that a few men, favored by the Most High, have received power to perform miracles. But to perform a miracle, it is necessary to have ability to create new causes capable of producing effects contrary to those of common causes. Is it easy to conceive that God can give men the inconceivable power of creating causes out of nothing? Is it credible that an immutable God can communicate to men power to change or rectify his plan, a power which by his essence an immutable being cannot save himself? Miracles, far from doing much honor to God, far from proving the divinity of a religion, evidently annihilate the God idea. How can a theologian tell us that God, who must have embraced the whole of his plan, who could have made none but perfect laws, and who cannot alter them, is forced to employ miracles to accomplish his projects, or can grant his creatures the power of working prodigies to execute his divine will. An omnipotent being, whose will is always fulfilled, who holds in his hand his creatures, has only to will to make them believe whatever he desires. 130. REFUDIATION OF THE REASONING OF PASCAL ON MIRACLES What shall we say of religions that prove their divinity by miracles? How can we credit miracles recorded in the sacred books of the Christians, where God boasts of hardening the hearts and blinding those whom he wishes to destroy, where he permits malicious spirits and magicians to work miracles as great as those of his servants, where it is predicted that Antichrist shall have power to perform prodigies capable of shaking the faith even of the elect? In this case, by what signs shall we know whether God means to instruct or ensnare us? How shall we distinguish whether the wonders we behold come from God or devil? To remove our perplexity, Pascal gravely tells us that 
It is necessary to judge the doctrine by the miracles, and the miracles by the doctrine, that the doctrine proves the miracles, and the miracles the doctrine. If there exists a vicious and ridiculous circle, it is undoubtedly in this splendid reasoning of one of the greatest defenders of Christianity. Where is the religion that does not boast of the most admirable doctrine, and which does not produce numerous miracles for its support? Is a miracle capable of annihilating the evidence of a demonstrated truth? Although a man should have the secret of healing all the sick, of making all the lame to walk, of raising in all the dead of a city, of ascending into the air, of stopping the course of the sun and moon, can he thereby convince me that two and two do not make four, that one makes three, and that three make only one? That a god whose immensity fills the universe could have been contained in the body of a Jew? That the eternal can die like a man? That a god who is said to be immutable, provident, and sensible, could have changed his mind upon his religion and reformed his own work by a new revelation? 131. Every new revelation is necessarily false. According to the very principles either of natural or revealed theology, every new revelation should be regarded as false. Every change in a religion emanated from the deity should be reputed as impiety and blasphemy. Does not all reform suppose that, in his first effort, God could not give his religion the solidity and perfection required? To say that God, in giving a first law, conformed to the rude ideas of the people whom he wished to enlighten, is to pretend that God was neither able nor willing to render the people whom he was enlightening so reasonable as was necessary in order to please him. Christianity is an impiety, if it is true that Judaism is a religion which has really emanated from a holy, immutable, omnipotent, and foreseeing God. The religion of Christ supposes either defects in the law which God himself had given by Moses, or impotence or malice in the same God who was either unable or unwilling to render the Jews such as they ought to have been in order to please him. Every new religion or reform of ancient religions is evidently founded upon the impotence, inconstancy, imprudence, or malice of the divinity. 132. Blood of martyrs testifies against the truth of miracles. If history informs me that the first apostles, the founders or reformers of religions, wrought great miracles, history also informs me that these reformers and their adherents were commonly buffeted, persecuted, and put to death as disturbers of the peace of nations. I am therefore tempted to believe that they did not perform the miracles ascribed to them. Indeed, such miracles must have gained them numerous partisans among the eyewitnesses who ought to have protected the operators from abuse. My incredulity redoubles when I am told that the workers of miracles were cruelly tormented or ignominiously executed. 
how is it possible to believe that missionaries, protected by God, invested with his divine power, and enjoying the gift of miracles, could not have wrought such a simple miracle as to escape the cruelty of their persecutors? Priests have the art of drawing from the persecutions themselves a convincing proof in favor of the religion of the persecuted. But a religion which boasts of having cost the lives of many martyrs, and informs us that its founders, in order to extend it, have suffered punishments, cannot be the religion of a beneficent, equitable, and omnipotent God. A good God would not permit men, entrusted with announcing his commands, to be ill-treated. An all-powerful God, wishing to found a religion, would proceed in a manner more simple and less fatal to the most faithful of his servants. To say that God would have his religion sealed with blood is to say that he is weak, unjust, ungrateful, and sanguinary, and that he is cruel enough to sacrifice his messengers to the views of his ambition. End of section 12 Recording by Roger Moline